Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is three heroes of COVID out of the UK. Nisreen, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Thanks, Grant. So I'm Nisreen Alwan. I'm um, an associate professor in public health at the University of Southampton and an honorary consultant in public health at University Hospital Southampton. So my research area before the pandemic <laughs> is uh, maternal and child health. So for, for a few years now, I've, met, I've researched particularly around pregnancy, before pregnancy, between two pregnancies, what factors, what modifiable factors mothers have or are exposed to, including environmental factors and how they influence their health and the health of their children, both in the, in the short and the long run. Now, in terms of COVID, so obviously I'm in public health. And when the pandemic started in in the UK back in February, March, I got very much involved with a a group of uh, public health academics and epidemiologists to try and provide some independent public health input to what was going on. So uh, we produced a few outputs and letters looking at, you know, the government response and, and putting some expert input into into what was going on really in the spring. While I was doing that, I also got symptoms of COVID-19 in March, which didn't completely go away. I kept getting, you know, relapsing symptoms. So basically what we now know is long COVID. So I got involved into the advocacy around long COVID because people weren't really talking about illness from COVID-19 at all. It was very much black and white, you know, death or nothing happens to you. So I started talking about how we need to measure illness and what long COVID looks like. And that's been um, my heaviest involvement, I would have, I would say, in the COVID-19 pandemic so far. But I also continue to input on things which are very much relevant to public health, particularly in my area of interest, which is uh, around children and families. Thank you so much. And Deepti? Hi, I'm Deepti Gurdasani. I'm a clinical epidemiologist and senior lecturer in machine learning at Queen Mary University of London. A lot of my work over the last decade has focused on studying the genetic and clinical determinants of disease in a global context, so particularly in more ethnically diverse populations. More recently, my work uh, has focused on trying to understand the impact of different interventions on COVID pandemic trajectories in a global context using machine learning methods, as well as studying long COVID alongside Nisreen to understand what the prominent clusters uh, of patient symptoms are and how people are likely to progress over time. And a lot of my work is essentially in developing new methods to help us understand what puts people more at risk and what influences how a pandemic starts and continues in different parts of the world. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Christina. Hi, so I'm Christina Pargel. I'm a professor of operational research at University College London. And operational research is like a branch of very applied mathematics. I think in the States it's called operations research or management science or systems engineering. It has all these different terms depending on which department you're in. But it's basically motivated by using whatever kind of quantitative method you can to help solve real problems. And that's kind of what I do. And part of that has been kind of national policy. So we have worked quite closely with the Department of Health around pandemic planning, but back around swine flu time, so 2009, 2010. And since then, a lot of my work has been working with clinicians and people living with congenital heart disease. 
and kind of trying to use national data sets to understand outcomes, communicate outcomes, make sure we're researching what matters to patients, what matters to doctors, and, and how do you explain that really complex interaction with the health system over time. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And then when the pandemic hit, my projects came to a big halt because we worked so closely with doctors and they were obviously all pulled off in that effort. And then we worked quite closely with local hospitals, just trying to help them understand what was happening, um, help them think about how to organise their care and what made a difference just because no one really knew what was happening in the first few months. And then in May, I was asked to join Independent Sage, which is like a group of 12, 13 scientists from different backgrounds. And that kind of was meant to be just one two-hour meeting in May, and it's kind of ended up taking over my life (laughs) eight months later. And we've kind of ended up becoming much more of a both policy advocacy, but also public communications role. And that's ended up being what I've been doing, just trying to take all the amazing science that's happening from including people like Deepti and Nizreen, and just trying to explain to the public, you know, what it means, what's happening, are things bad, are they good, what do we have to watch out for, where is it going, and just trying to do that in a way that is accessible and not sensationalist, I suppose, is what I'm trying to do. Thank you so much. That is a great segue to our our first topic, uh, where things are going. I would, would love to hear all of your thoughts on the new variants, and maybe for the sake of our listeners, you know, there's a lot of noise out there, you know, if you can kind of distill down what we know and what maybe remains unresolved. Well, I can, I can start on that. Just, you know, I'm a you know, mathematician by background and I work mostly in kind of more operational side of healthcare and I don't have a background in, you know, virology or infectious diseases to that side. So I hadn't really been thinking about variants, to be honest. Like, you know, I knew that Obviously, there's potential for mutation and people talked about it. But then over the summer, there was a kind of the noises that I was hearing was, oh, don't worry, it's mutating slowly. And so I just hadn't really been thinking about it. And then in November, when I think they first mentioned or very early in December, when they first mentioned, oh, there might be a new trans, more transmissible variant in the UK, I was just like, oh. And then I remember very vividly watching the press conference where Matt Hancock said it might be up to 50%, 70% more infectious. And I thought, this is really, really bad. Really bad. Just from, you know, the basic maths of it, that once you have something that's that much more infectious, then everything you're trying to do to keep things down is that much harder. I also, to be honest, felt not relief, but at least it suddenly made sense why things were going wrong in the southeast of England, because I just could not understand why cases were going up in the kind of restrictions that we had. And so that made sense I was like oh okay well that kind of explains it but then I just thought then we're in trouble we're in real trouble unless we do something straight away and that's kind of proven to be the case we had like terrible terrible January in the UK and other countries that have had the UK variant increase have also had real problems you know that's Ireland Israel and Portugal and then of course there were the South African variant and then the Brazilian variant and you realize now that we have so many millions of people who've had COVID. It's had so many opportunities to mutate. And if it comes to a situation where it can affect people more easily or it can affect people who've already had it or had the vaccine, that gives it a big advantage. And I think that is the biggest danger now because we've got millions of people who've been vaccinated, millions of people with COVID, and you're really giving it a lot of incentive to evolve in a way that's quite bad for us. And so we've ended up in a bit of an arms race and I'm not particularly happy about it. <laughs> So 
while there's a lot of talk about new variants now in the media, the truth is that the virus has been evolving over a long period of time. So in February itself, we know that there was a variant called D614G that was identified and was circulating. This is a variant that was subsequently found to be about 20 to 30% more transmissible than the previous variant and became the predominant variant globally by June. And since then, there are several variants that have arisen on the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that we know binds to human cells and is necessary for infection, that have potentially allowed the virus to escape immune responses directed at previous variants, at least in the laboratory. And subsequently, in September, we heard about many new variants arising from infection to and back from mink farms. So mink were a reservoir for infection, and that a large number of mutations were accumulating that were being transferred back to humans. And once again, there were concerns about how these mutations could potentially escape immune responses as previous variants. So in many ways, this was expected, I guess, given the high levels of transmission that were continuing in many countries. But I guess the degree of increase in transmission was quite a shock when that happened. So we heard about the UK variant uh, very close to when we heard about the South Africa variant or the so-called South Africa variant, uh, with both of those potentially increasing transmission by about 50%. Uh, and subsequently, it also became clear that there were other variants in Manaus as well. And there were many shared mutations between these variants. So they were particular mutations such as the 501Y mutation, which was potentially associated with increased transmissibility, increased affinity to the ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor required for binding and infecting human cells. And there were also variants such as the E484K uh, mutation, which has been associated with escape against immune responses directed at previous variants. Now we have become aware that unfortunately these laboratory findings are translating into reduced vaccine effectiveness. We know from the Novavax and Johnson Johnson trials and more recently uh, reports from preliminary data from the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine that effectiveness to prevent symptomatic disease at least is likely to be lower against this particular variant uh, for vaccines that were manufactured against previous variants. And, and this is something that's really concerning at the moment. But what's really interesting is the way these variants have emerged in different parts of the world again and again, independently, but converged onto the same mutations, which suggests that these are actual virus adaptations that are favorable to the virus in certain environments. And there's no reason to think that adaptation will stop here, not continue, given we've seen the virus evolving pretty much since, since February 2020. So, you know, we really need to tackle this in a different way than we have so far. We're also hearing about new adaptations on top of variants. So, for example, the UK variant now seems to be evolving in the direction of the South African Manaus variant, developing the same mutations uh, that have been associated with escape and reduced vaccine effectiveness. So unless we really do something to stop this, this is likely to continue. Nisreen, would you like to, to give input on that or should we move on? There's not much more I can add, really, to that explanation. I suppose the main simple truth around the variants, to me, from a public health point of view, that it's obvious that if you give the virus a lot of room to spread, you know, you will get these, you know, mutations and variants. You'll, you could get more of them. And so I think it's, it's about how much room we're giving the virus to spread. And And the other thing from a public health point of view is, even though that there is difference in transmissibility uh, of these variants, actually the public health measures that we use are the same. 
and they would work on all the variants. So that's good news in a way in, in that we don't have to learn this all over again in terms of what we can do to suppress the virus, you know, other than the vaccination, obviously, which will have to adapt to the variants. But in terms of the non-pharmacological interventions, they're the same. And we're seeing that like in the UK now, like the, the quite strict lockdown in which we're under is working to reduce cases, even though the English variant is now dominant across the country. But it is, we are still having reduction in cases and reduction in hospital admissions. And so following on from that, what do you think is a reasonable spectrum of possibilities for where this might go in the future? You know, do you think it's in the realm of possibility that we'll be back to life to normal in the foreseeable future or that we'll have some kind of a COVID-22 that's, uh, you know, has 30% fatality or something? Is it just a, a complete unknown? Well, define foreseeable. What's the foreseeable future? Is it a year? Is it five years, 10 years? Um, well, can you give us some hope? Like what, what would be a, a time range? I don't think we'll be back to normal this year. That's what I think. I don't think we will this year. If we can get as many people vaccinated everywhere, not just in the rich countries, it has to be everywhere. <laughs> keep some measure of quarantine at borders, keep really good surveillance in place, keep cases down till you get kind of local elimination and you're looking at sporadic outbreaks, then I can see a return to normal, but doing that is going to take, you know, well over a year. And if we don't, if if we don't, if we just say we'll vaccinate our own country, then you will get new back variants arising and you will get variants that evade the vaccines, not least because once they, if they can evade antibodies from people who've made it before, they'll, those same evolution might help them evade the vaccine. So we just can't risk it and we'll just end up doing it again in two, three years time. So so that is my fear, is that we end up in some kind of COVID groundhog day, which would be just really, really miserable. But we, but we know there's a way out. It's just, you know, will we do it? I think one of the things, if I may say, which might have hindered the response, uh, the pandemic response, is this desperate urge to go back to normal. <laughs> I think if we had adapted a bit and said this might be with us for a while, so we have to change our behaviours in a way, we have to change how we do things in a certain way, which is tolerable, tolerable to us, you know, as a society, to our mental health, you know, which doesn't uh, result in severe social isolation. For example, if we had adapted a bit from the start and looked at it as a bit of a, a more of a long term adaptation, then maybe we would be in a better place now. And also, this is not too late to think about it now. So I think it's, this pandemic has been plagued and I just see it and it pains me. Everything is black and white. Everything is, you know, it's really bad or, you know, we want to go back to completely normal. And the same with the mortality against, you know, this virus doesn't touch you at all. So go and get it. And, and in every single aspect of the pandemic has been plagued by this black and white picture. And, and we need a bit of gray in here. You know, it's difficult times for us, but they don't have to be black. You know, they could be grey if we get the balance right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about this desire to get back to normal, almost making things worse as people kind of keep trying to push it. And it just, it just isn't working. It just slaps you back in the face. To me, the question about when we can get back to normal is completely dependent on government strategy and political will. So there are two endpoints to this. One endpoint is following elimination. So we don't have cases anymore and life can return to new normal. 
And the other endpoint is achieving herd immunity so that uh, we don't see at least large outbreaks of infection anymore. The former probably is faster to achieve because many countries have done this within a period of about six months or so, but requires very strong political will fixing a lot of systems within the UK that are broken and actually persevering with lockdown, supporting the public through this period until cases reach near zero before lifting restrictions and then having good surveillance systems in place to actually pick up cases and support people with isolating where needed. The second strategy, which is pursuing herd immunity primarily through vaccination, it is much harder to predict what the endpoint of that will be. And the reason for that is that it's really unclear whether herd immunity can even be reached through vaccination. We're dealing with a variant that's more transmissible, which means the herd immunity threshold is likely to be higher. The vaccine is still not going to be available in many groups, particularly children who do transmit the virus. And uh, we don't know what the vaccine uptake is going to be across the population. And of course, we don't know what the vaccine effectiveness is in preventing infection. All of those unknowns make it very hard to understand whether herd immunity can be reached at all and if it can, when it will be reached. If we add new variants into the mix, it's even more complicated because as new variants emerge, they may be uh, able to escape vaccine-acquired immunity directed at previous variants, which would make trying to achieve a herd immunity threshold almost impossible and outbreaks could potentially continue for many, many years. So I, I definitely favor the former strategy because I think it's more clear, clear cut. There's less uncertainty around it and it can be achieved in a shorter period of time, but it's all down to political will and strategy. And it's very clear that many countries are still pursuing the latter, even though there's a lot less certain and the potential public health cost and the economic cost is much higher. Anything else to add on that before we go on to long COVID? I mean, I would I would just add that to me, like the arguments for an elimination strategy, like Deep T was saying, have just got stronger and stronger over the last six, seven months. And I think especially with the new variants and the new transmissibility, you know, I actually think we, we probably won't ever be able to reach herd immunity threshold. And even if we did, we still don't know how long immunity lasts. <laughs> so that's the other issue. So... So an elimination strategy just seems like the one thing that we know we can do because lots of countries have done it. The problem is that if only some countries do it and some countries never do it, then you're looking at having quite strict border controls for years and years and years. And that has a consequence. So I kind of feel like we have to work together as a whole globe. And I'm not sure we have a great track record of doing it, <laughs> sadly. Thanks for pointing that out, Christina. Those are, yeah, those are really, really important points. I agree with both Christina and Deep T, I'm afraid. So there's no sensational disagreement on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I think elimination strategy <laughs> is the way forward. <laughs> oh, no. It just seems like a no-brainer. And, and I have to be honest, like whenever I see pictures of like people going to concerts in New Zealand or just going out, I'm just like so jealous. I'm like, I want that. Or people in a busy market in Thailand or Taiwan and going out to restaurants. <laughs> Why can't I have that in my life? <laughs> and, and people over there have accepted certain sacrifices to do that, you yeah. know, in terms of, you know, yeah. uh, you know, lots of things, but including border control, you know, the tough of, you know, not being able to, to leave. And they've accepted that. And the, I think what was key to that is a very clear 
a public communication right from the very start, basically from the policymakers saying, this is the goal. It's clear, you know, what we're aiming for. These are the sacrifices that need to be made, but this is what we'll get if we make these sacrifices. And that's what happened. And and we didn't have that. We didn't have that clear strategy. And I'm afraid we still don't have it up until a year in. I do wonder whether for, especially, it's definitely happened in the UK, that we kind of tried to tech our way out of it. It was kind of, we've got this great tech, technological solution, whatever it happens to be. And it's kind of been a series of them, none of which have worked. Instead of actually just saying, you know, we're in a global pandemic and there's nothing about that that's going to be very fun, right? I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. I'm like, well, it sucks, right? It sucks to be in this situation. And we're kind of the first really bad pandemic in the modern era when you have a globally connected civilization so it is really really difficult but that kind of that honesty of messaging and of saying right if we do these things we'll get these payoffs we just didn't really do it here and yeah I completely agree with that and also the fact that you know we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2 over the past year but the fact is we didn't need any of that information to know how to manage it because the countries who managed it successfully right at the beginning treated it as it was a highly infectious respiratory virus and it was just public health 101 that they followed and that worked and essentially that's we know that's what works even now but as christina said we've tried to find these new technologies which we've not even added to our response but rather use them to replace basic public health responses and it's no surprise that it's completely failed Speaking of those technologies, uh, where are we on on vaccines? And do you think, with all the new variants going around, that the the mRNA based vaccines will be able to be updated quickly enough? Do you think there is a technological path out of this? Well, I can't really talk about vaccines without sounding like a complete and utter idiot. So I'm going to leave it to the experts. <laughs> like I barely know what mRNA is. So. Seriously, go for it. Okay, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that. So vaccines can be updated. And while, you know, technically it might be an easy thing to do, they still will require a huge amount of testing in the laboratory in people and validation, which will take several months. And I think the big question is, what are going to be the variants in place by the time that vaccine comes out? So we need to actually take preemptive action to prevent variants from emerging right now by really curbing transmission and pushing towards elimination. Because unless we do that, we're constantly going to be behind vaccine manufacturing. The point is that we can't wait three to four months to actually vaccinate people because the NHS, our NHS services were overwhelmed until a few weeks ago. And even now, many places are very close to capacity. So the idea that we can maintain huge amounts of transmission alongside vaccination and have a good vaccine response isn't really grounded in reality. And we need to remember that we have these variants emerging right now, even without huge amounts of immune selection pressure within the population. As we start vaccinating more and more people, there's going to be much more immune-related selection pressure, potentially speeding up the sort of adaptation we've been seeing, and we may see even more escape mutations. So we need to actually keep ahead of this by following elimination and preventing emergence of new variants rather than constantly having to adapt our vaccines too late to these variants. Yeah, I mean, again, I agree. I think it's that we can see now, and everybody, the public, is probably seeing there's a race between the vaccine and the virus adapting and changing. 
And I think all the technology in the world will not win the race if the virus has a lot of room to spread and infect more and more people and change. So it's very clear now that the vaccine cannot be our only strategy out of this. Although I am increasingly surprised by uh, many, many people who are still reinforcing this message. The fact that we have so many good vaccines within a year, I still think is pretty miraculous. Mm. And it does put us in a much better position than we would otherwise have been, even with all of the the caveats and and the concerns that that Deepthi and Nisreen spoke about, that that is pretty amazing to me. And I agree, yeah. I agree completely with what Christina said. We have a large number of vaccines that are effective against not just the previous variants of the virus, but still highly effective, at least in preventing severe disease for most vaccines, even against current variants of virus. And uh, if if people are offered the vaccine, they should absolutely take them. But I'm, I'm more talking about adapting policy to kind of ensure that these resources are protected for our future. Great. Thank you so much for that. And in our, our last 10 minutes, yeah, I think it'd be great to talk about long COVID, given that obviously a very large number of people have been infected. And realistically, it, it sounds like a, a very large number will continue to be infected in the uh, foreseeable future. So can, can you talk about, about long COVID and what we do know, what we don't know, what maybe your biggest concerns are long-term uh, for people's health? So surprisingly, we still really don't know a lot about long COVID. What we do know is to have long-term illness. Obviously, when I say long-term, the the age of the pandemic, which is not very long now, and that some people who get the infection do not recover quickly. And that includes two things. People who are severely ill and hospitalized because of the infection, you know, might get discharged from hospital and, and still stay unwell for a while. They might suffer complications like heart, um, you know, and lung um, clotting complications, neurological complications, but also people who are not hospitalized at the start and had what the so-called mild illness might not recover. So the estimates at the moment is about one in 10 people who have not recovered even from a mild illness at about, you know, three months from onset. So that's quite a sizable proportion, depending on how many of the population are getting infected, so the prevalence of the infection. So it's uh, basically a collection of symptoms uh, that people experience, and this multi-system, so it could be heart, lung, um, neurological, skin, general uh, symptoms, and usually it's multi-system. It's rare that people will have just one, one system affected, and the severity of it is really variable. We still don't know what the mechanism and if there's more than one underlying mechanism for long COVID because of the variable clinical picture as well. And the proposed mechanisms include overdrive of the immune system that happens after getting COVID-19 that causes this, so like an autoimmune process, or could be also a persistent virus that flares up uh, from time to time or a general inflammatory process. So there are multiple mechanisms proposed. So my main concern about long COVID is relevant to what we've been talking about, which is basically the strategy. The strategy is focused mainly on vaccination. So if you say the most important thing and our target is to to prevent severe disease, and that's basically means hospitalization and death. And if that's achieved, that's fine. We're out of the pandemic. We don't need to do much about it. Then that could potentially allow a lot of long COVID where people don't get to that threshold of needing hospital in their initial 
illness, but then they, you know, they don't really recover. And that means huge implications for society in terms of people not being able to work and sick bay and not being able to care for people who, you know, they care for. So I don't really see this factored in. I don't see long COVID factored in, in all of these pandemic policy decisions that uh, are being taken at the moment. And that's a, and that's a big concern. Is there data on the effect of vaccines on the incidence of long COVID? No, we just don't know if it's effective. There is no data. There are anecdotal stories of some people improving after getting the vaccine, some people getting worse symptoms. So really, there's no systematic data on it. And that is probably also because we don't have a lot of long COVID uh, patients who are already vaccinated, given, you know, the priorities for vaccination, because there are a lot of people with long COVID are, you know, younger age groups, and and healthier people who didn't have any underlying medical conditions before getting it. I think that's a very important point that, uh, you know, when we look at severe disease, which is defined as hospitalizations and deaths, the sort of demographics or the age groups we look at are quite different from the ones that we are that are affected by long COVID. And targeting just one group is not going to necessarily impact the other. For example, in the UK, uh, easing of lockdown has been tied in right from the beginning from vaccine targets. And that doesn't really account for any of this at all, because the vaccine essentially will prevent severe disease in those who are being vaccinated. But we won't vaccinate enough people to even come close to reaching herd immunity. So transmission will very likely continue amongst the younger population, who are the majority of cases anyway, if we start easing lockdown. And that will mean many, many more cases of long COVID. So we will probably end up with a pandemic of chronic disease in a few months' time or even in a few years' time something that we don't fully understand, but will not take seriously, unfortunately, until it's too late. I mean, it is, it has just been so irresponsible. So at the moment in the in the UK, we're trying to vaccinate everybody over the age of 70, plus healthcare workers by the middle of February, and they're on track to do that. And that's amazing. And that will have a massive impact on deaths and a reasonable impact on hospitalizations. But 90% of cases are in under 70 year olds. They're not the drivers of transmission. And just the idea that somehow there are these calls just to open up and it's fine for younger people to get it. And it's just crazy because it's not fine. You know, even, you know, something like one in seven kids have symptoms after seven weeks from the Office of National Statistics. It's just the idea that we would just expose people to potentially long-term problems. Well, we know there are long-term problems, but also we don't know what could happen in five years' time. We don't know what the long-term impact is at all. How can we? It's only a year old. Right. I mean, after Spanish flu in 1918, there was a kind of mini epidemic of Parkinson's 15 years later because it ended up, it seems like, damaging the brain. Like, we don't know any of that. So the idea that you would just encourage people to get infected because you can't be bothered to have an effective public health strategy just drives me crazy, as you might be able to tell. I think that's exactly what it is, the uncertainty of it all. And right from the start, we saw that. <laughs> I certainly did. It's a new virus. You don't know what it's going to do. And there was this certainty around saying, well, no, uh, if it's mild, it's mild, it's going to go away and it won't touch you. And, you know, when people were talking about herd immunity and getting young people uh, infected, it was really a horror movie <laughs> happening in front of my eyes. Because and I was thinking, they do they know something that I don't know? Because how do they know this virus won't give you long term effects? And even now you say long COVID and they say, well, it's just post-viral syndrome. So the two things, first of all, 
Post-viral syndrome is not just, it disables people severely for a lot, potentially a very long time. So if you have loads of people with it, that's uh, that's a major problem. But also you don't know if it's post-viral syndrome, you don't know if it's going to go away and you don't know who's, who's likely to get worse. There's so much we don't know. And the way we've abandoned the precautionary principle and, and, and embracing that uncertainty, I find it very astonishing. And we continue to do so, I think, and, and really need to revisit that in, in terms of how we communicate that uncertainty and act on it. Well, great. Nizreen, Deepti, Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. 